0: If any of the questions, there's more than one right answer. So when I upload the um, the answers that I have to that, just realize that you gave us a reasonable argument, even we think um, it's, it's reasonable, we think it's correct, we'll get the credit for that as well. And I mentioned last time, what we tried to also is before we start assigning a grade, I anything in particular, we like to go through it with everybody's answers first to make sure we're getting some consistency. So, if necessary. All the questions are graded somewhat on under curve. Anybody have any questions about this? For the exam, do we need redox in or It's a good question. Uh, thanks. I'm, I'm just fine i just reminding I want to talk about that. So, I'm not going to make you memorize redox tables. You will get a redox table on the exam. You will get uh, any of the constants that are in those equations. But really, you've learned three. Generate a proton or calculate a proton motor force, we got differences between things, and how to calculate the free energy from that. Those are pretty simple equations, I expect you to know. Uh, also, be aware that you, know, you need to bring in um, a calculator when you come to class for the exam, because obviously you're going to have to be some calculations on it. So, are ready for that? exam you'll have to bring it back later. So various things. Any other questions about the problem sets in the exam? Don't forget the exam is next Wednesday night. And just to give you a heads up, it will not be in this room. It will be in this joint room, 1520 I think the number is. It's a large room to give you guys a little bit more space. (coughs) Um, It starts at 535. I think it started at 530. There's a clap. Apparently it has to be a certain number of minutes. classes. So it starts at 5.25. should be able to finish it by 7. Um, but I'm not someone who sits there and says, you know, 7 I'm taking your exams away. If you're someone that takes a little bit longer to do the exam, fine. We'll wait. Work at your own pace to get it Alright. So the last topic that's going to be on this exam is fermentation. And what we've been talking about so far is two of the three dominant mechanisms for how organisms generate energy, generate energy in the context of generating um, an ion gradient and also generating some ATP. We talk about how those are actually connected to each other. The last form of energy generation is fermentation. Now, there are a lot of different definitions of fermentation. I have a pretty strict one because I think it's kind of the only one that makes sense. Um, that is all of the ATP that's being generated is from substrate level phosphorylation. And we'll discuss exactly what that means. If at any point during the process it involves moving an ion across the membrane to generate a gradient, in my definition that is not fermentation. Right? Because then you're into what I would use, respiration. Okay. So organisms that do... Fermentation, um, still need an ion grade. So they still need to generate a proton motive force or a sodium motive force in some way. And what they do is they take the ATP and it comes off a substrate level phosphorylation and it goes to that ATP synthase but now it's going to work as an ATPase in reverse and the ATP will be hydrolyzed and it pumps protons out of the cell. So that was the key part about this has to be reversible. When um, the Mitchell- Postulates were put forward about the chemiosmotic theory. That was one of the keys because you had to explain how organisms that do fermentation still generate a proton motor force if they're doing everything by substrate level phosphorylation. Now you commonly see that it's a pathway which reduced electron acceptor that is generated by the oxidation reaction. The pathway is then reoxidized. by the pathway. So what I've done is just try to summarize that here as one example. You have a molecule that is reduced. You have some type of electron acceptor or, or um, intermediate that gets, the electrons are pulled off of A, it gets converted to B, and those electrons are now in at those electrons, then, are dumped back onto this molecule B. B is now reduced, and that gets secreted out of the cell. Right? In essence, all you're trying to do is pull electrons off of one thing, dump it on another, and get rid of that pain that you dump those electrons onto. So this isn't a problem in respiration a lot of times. So what is the cell using as an electron dump in aerobic respiration? Well, is that water? Oxygen. Well, they're generating water, but oxygen. oxygen right? So if you're growing aerobically, there's plenty of oxygen around. In essence, what's happening in respiration, the reason they don't have to worry about something called balance of redox is they're just dumping the electrons on oxygen. It makes water the makes water goes away, way. In phototropy, you solve energy generation, you have a cyclic process. So there's no need to worry about... Um, having to dump those excess electrons because, in essence, they're going in a cyclic process when so they're generating energy. So, in fermentation, there are two problems. Conservation of energy, so you've got to generate some ATP, all of it by substrate-level phosphorylation, and then dispose of the electrons removed from the electron donors to be balanced right? So, the amount of electrons you pull out of something have to be accounted for at the end. And the key is, you'll see, when you look at these pathways, We'll talk about how you calculate an oxidation value for the various molecules. If it turns out what went in, the oxidation value of that is not going to be the same as what goes out, then the pathway you're looking at has got to be wrong. because the bug did not survive, that does not balance. We're going to show you how to do these types of calculations. So the key thing now is this conservation of energy, so you want to generate some ATP. And we've talked about how in order to do that, the cell needs to have a process that has a high enough amount of energy that it can couple that to the generation of ATP. Well, it turns out there's a lot of molecules in the cell that have some energy associated with them when they are phosphorylated. <coughs> so pyruvate, it can be hydrolyzed to the phosphate. That is a favorable reaction with delta G, not as standard free energy, is minus 62 kilojoules per mole. One three bisphosphoglycerate, you can pull one of those phosphates off, minus 49. Acetyl phosphate, you can pull that off, minus, minus minus 48. And we've already talked about ATP hydrolysis has a free energy of minus 30.5 kilojoules per mole, which means that any of these reactions has enough energy to drive the formation of ATP. These reactions down here that also occur a lot in the cell, there's not enough energy in here for them to be coupled to generating ATP. So in substrate-level phosphorylation, these are the three dominant ones that you see in the cell, or you see something structurally quite similar to these molecules. And so what we'll learn about why these are um, capable of generating when looking at those molecules, you shouldn't be able to put those towards any molecule and looking at them structurally. So, the reason why these have such energy, high energy is, in essence, group transfer potential. Right? we talked about that with ATP, but it's also true for these molecules. So, if you look at these structures, so the synthesis of ATP by 1,3 bisphosphoglycerate, here's the chemical structure of that molecule, and what I want you to start paying attention to is where is the phosphate on that molecule, and what's adjacent to it. So, if you look at 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate and ADP, the part of this that's energetically favorable is this oxygen can attack that phosphorus, because (coughs) this is nucleophilic, that's electrophilic, and you can push the electrons around. So, same reason why ATP was so energetic if you're sitting there with a molecule <coughs> such as this. One of the benefits is if your ADP, you attack here, the electrons go up, they come back down, these electrons have to go somewhere they go to here because you have that functionality there, that carbon double bonded to the oxygen. Remember we talked about how the back, if you look at these, you can somewhat say from what's being attacked, this is the alpha position, that's the data that beta has a keto group there, then you can push electrons around and it's energetically favorable. It has beneficial transfer potential. There's energy. Right. So if you look at the other side of 13 bis glycerin, there's also a phosphate. But that one is not energetically favorable. Because if you were to attack that phosphorus, those electrons have to go somewhere. Here's the alpha position relative to where it's being attacked. There's the beta. There's no functionality there. There's no way to push electrons. It's not energetically favorable, right? So, looking at that molecule, you can immediately say that one phosphate is movable, and therefore, there's high energy associated with that. Is it just keto group, or could you use like double bonds too? We'll talk about that right one later. So, synthesis of a single phosphate, <clears throat> same thing. You've got attack on that phosphorus, move these electrons. You can push them around because you've got that character. In essence, it's the same as this part of this molecule. There's no real difference. So, you can have an incredibly elaborate structure, um, and coming off of this carbon here, it could be enormous. You know, thousands of Dalton's in size, it doesn't really matter. all right. You can ignore all of it and just focus on that part of the molecule. Now I was just asked as well, what about carbon double ionism? Um, another carbon, that allows you to push electrons around as well. And so, this can attack that phosphorus. These electrons drop. Because of this position, you can drop those electrons out. That's energy efficient as well. So in essence, you have it. Alpha beta, that beta has a double bond, you can push electrons. So if you remember some of this from organic chemistry, um, what's too bad you guys have to do with organic chemistry? You know, a fraction of it is needed in biology. You know, we're not talking about platinum catalysts, something crazy. It's very limited what you need to know in Alright? So I'm going to try to simplify it all, all down so you can understand how metabolism works. Anybody have any questions about that? So, so if you're looking at a pathway, and I'm telling you to give me an idea of where you can generate some energy, you should be able to just look through the structures and think about how that would work and say that's a place that probably you can generate space. Pretty straightforward. Look at that beta position. Because <coughs> you can push electrons. Again, patterns that occur. We've talked endlessly about say malinal CoA. That's referred to as a beta keto acid. Alright? Alpha position, beta position. You got a keto at the beta position, you got an acid. Right? You can push electrons around. Right. That's why it decarboxylates. Notice it's very similar to that. All right? So that's why decroboxylation very energetically favorable. You can move those electrons efficiently. That's the reason why this has a lot of potential. Right. The other thing is, when you look at a molecule such as this, you can also go the other direction. Is that if you had a nucleophile attack here, you can push the electrons up, and have to come back down. over there, you can push them up there. All right? Group transfer potential, a lot of energy. So the other thing you'll see a lot of in fermentation and throughout metabolism are these thioesters. So remember this is what an ester looks like. The thioester in essence that oxygen is replaced by that sulfur. So you can look at this reaction. You make acetyl-CoA. That can very readily be converted to acetyl-phosphate. Because you can attack here. Push the electrons up, That sulfur actually allows you to push the electrons off in the other right direction, and so the movement back and forth between a coA and a phosphorylated form occurs very rapidly, thousands of times. So again, that's something you need to keep track of when you look at fermentated pathways. And the other thing is, there's a lot of these of molecules tethered to coenzyme A, and the reason why they're tethered to coenzyme A. In essence, it's just a carrier, and what the cell wants to do is to modify the appropriate amount of a particular molecule, for example, lactate here. So lactate goes to lactone CoA, right? In this process, what's happening is that, when it's headed to CoA, you can essentially sequester it away from the rest of this population. And so you pull a certain amount of it out of that lactate population, pull it away, and then you can divert just that amount of lactate into the pathway. You're not going to do all of your lactate, you're just doing the appropriate amount of lactate. So, what you can do is sequester that cellular pool, but in the end, you might still want this acid, and the CoA can be removed and you retain the acid. Okay? So look through those pathways or look through this and understand that essence CoA and that acid are important for the cell to keep this, in essence, what you're doing is making sure you're keeping. So that's how, in essence, a, a brief summary of a lot of what we're going to run into within fermentation. Right? The other aspect of fermentation is this redox balance. Right? So we've talked about how electrons moving through an electron transport chain are set up in a manner that are favorable because you have something that can donate electrons something that you can accept electrons very efficiently and there's energy in that process. Fermentation takes advantage of that. There are lots of redox reactions that occur. They can occur fairly in one direction or other because you have an electron donor and an electron receptor that when put together to work really efficiently. So the key to fermentation then is this balance. So there are three general mechanisms of fermentation one of which is a linear fermentation of a single substrate. And it's kind of what originally I put in as the definition. You have a molecule A that is reduced. You pull the electrons out. It becomes oxidized into molecule B. Those electrons at some point are then dumped back onto the molecule, converting it to molecule C. Since the amount of electrons pulled out of A and dumped onto B are equivalent, redox balances. You can have branched fermentation pathways where A gets converted to B, but B can go in two different directions. If it goes in two different directions, you still have to balance redox. So you typically will have a pathway that is the oxidation pathway, and you'll have another one that'll be the reduction pathway, right? And they have to match up. And we'll talk about examples where you can go through the oxidation pathway, and let's say it takes or, let's say, you go through the pathway, and it turns out that that has to accept, um, in going from B to D, it has to accept four electrons. Right? But going from B to C only removes two electrons. So, the way the cell deals with it is move through here twice to balance this one reaction, okay? Because everything has to balance. And the last thing we'll talk about is fermentation of two substrates. And all it means is that one of them is get oxidized, one of them is going to get reduced. So you're going to pull the electrons out of A, you're going to dump them onto C, the balance redox. Anybody have any questions? What I'm showing you are pathways that in the cell work in the forward and reverse direction very efficiently depending on whether they're trying to get rid of electrons or trying to um, gain or pull electrons out of something. You have a reduction going in this direction. If you go the other direction, you're an oxidation. Now the key to this is this keto group is being converted to a methylene. You're getting rid of that oxygen. What happens in this process is that keto gets converted to an alcohol, you dehydrate to get to a double bond, and then you reduce that to the, to the That pattern of a keto group going to a methylene, if you understand this, pretty much what you just learned is half the TCA cycle, how fatty acid biosynthesis happens, how fatty acid degradation happens, how organisms synthesize um, antibiotics, and also how most of the fermentation factors work. Right? It's just that, over and, over and over and over and over again. Nature figures out that it's pretty efficient to do this, it's just going to repeat it. Right? It doesn't have to come up with a whole new way to do it. You can also have acids, get you know, converted to aldehydes and then alcohols. It's You'll see that very frequently as well. So as you go through these pathways, for example, you will get a question on the exam that's going to give you a molecule like this. It's going to give you none of the things in between, and it will give you a molecule that looks like this on the end. Right? And I'm not going to give you the intermediates. I'm not going to tell you where any reduction happened, where any oxidation, dehydration, or anything. I'm going to expect that you can just look at that, even if you've never seen the starting compound and the final compound. And you can just go through it and say, all right, I know exactly how it's going to happen. we have any <coughs> Alright. So now, before we get into these pathways, I'm <coughs> uh, show you some tricks that you can do to really understand um, what's going on. And what you can do with this is if you get stuck and you really can't figure out what has to happen, you can do some quick calculations. If you're not sure where reduction of having happens, I'll show you how you can figure that. out. All right, so the first thing, if you have a molecule that I draw, or you see it's drawn where these oxygens have a negative on them, the first thing you would do is convert those to having protons. So in essence, they have a hydrogen there. Okay. So if you're looking through a pathway, First thing, if you're trying to understand redox, do that. The other thing is if you see a molecule such as this, you have a phosphorus is a phosphate molecule, break the bond between the oxygen and the phosphorus and replace it with a hydrogen. All right, so you can ignore the phosphate in this. Right? What we're going to do is I'm going to show you how to calculate redox. The other thing is if you have something like a C-CoA, Get rid of the CoA except for the sulfur and add a proton to it. Right? So when you're first looking at a pathway you try and you're trying to understand reox and understand how the fermentation works, just do that to start off with that. So the other thing is add up the value of the compounds using the, the following values. Alright? So <coughs> if we look at we're only going to concern ourselves with the most common things in biology. So you're going to have hydrogen, you're going to have carbon. And what I'm drawing are the balance electrons to those molecules. You have nitrogen. You have sulfur. And you have oxygen. So, to understand whether something got oxidized or got reduced, you should know by now, that if something became reduced, it gained electrons. If it was oxidized, it lost electrons, And The big challenge in fermentation is to try to go through and say, well, is this molecule more oxidized and reduced than that molecule? And that's really difficult to do. You know, you can sit there and draw the entire pathway and come up with some assumptions, but I'm going to show you a formula here that allows you to do it very quickly. So what we're going to do is every carbon that you see, you're going to give it a value of zero. For nitrogen, what we're going to do is ignore the valence electrons that are paired together. So we're going to give it a value of For sulfur, we're going to ignore the paired electrons and give it a value of 2. Do the same with oxygen. Give it a value of 2. And then with hydrogen, we're just going to give it a value as one valence electron, but we're going to give it a value of minus 1. So... If you are trying to figure out whether a molecule became oxidized or reduced as it goes between two molecules, all you need to do is look at if it's a more positive number, it became more oxidized, right? Electrons were removed. Electrons are negatively charged, so if it became more positive, it lost electrons. If it became more negative, it gained electrons. So if you look at oxaloacetate, part of the TCA cycle, it has a value. If you go through, you've got 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, that would be plus 10. And then we got a, how many hydrogens? We've got 1, 2, 3, 4 hydrogens. So minus 4. Right. So you have 6 times 2, because we're every oxygen, has value of 2. Did I do that right? Oxygens. It's going to give you a value of plus 10. And if we were these, we have one hydrogen here, two, three, four, four times minus one. Four gives you a value of plus six. So that's where that value is coming from. Does that make sense? Malay, let's say you have no idea about that enzyme. You don't know exactly what it's doing. You're not sure, is this more oxidized or reduced than that? Did anything happen over there? You do that same calculation, the value comes out to be plus 4. Right? This value is plus 6. That value is plus 4. It's gone down by 2, which means that 2 electrons went into this system. Right? So that means this is more oxidized than that. And so you can to say, redox reaction. And you know the direction whether it became oxidized or reduced. Everyone follow that. Now here's one where if you looked at this molecule and you looked at this molecule, you'd be a little confused of whether any redox happened. You lost an oxygen. But if you do the calculation based on this, what you find is thunerate has up plus 4. So the conversion of thunerate, there's no redox that happened there. So you can ignore that in the context of fermentation. It's not having any issues with generating electrons or reducing electrons. So you don't have to worry about it. If you're... So if you were to draw the pathway, because what we're going to deal with is that if you were to go from succinate to oxaloacetate, what you need to do is say, okay, in that part of the pathway, how many electrons came out of it? Because in the end, i got to account, those electrons then, all of them had to have gone back in somewhere else. And if it doesn't, then, balance, then redox does not balance. All right? So what you could say then is two electrons came out of here. So in essence, let's say they came out and they were stored on NAD. So you wound up with NADH. All right? So that means you've got one NADH That now you've got to account for somewhere else in the the cell's metabolism. Same thing here. You have to, as malate goes to oxaloacetate, that's going to give you another molecule of NADH. Which means that somewhere else in the pathway, you've had to burn both of those reduced NADHs and regenerate the oxidized NAD plus. Does that make sense? So, fumarate to succinate. We just talked about calculate the oxidation value. What you find is this is plus four. That's plus two. Two electrons must have gone in if you're going from fumarate to succinate. Where do you get the There's one on this oxygen. There's one on this oxygen. And there's one on that carbon. There's one on that carbon. Or two on that carbon. So I'm not drawing. So. Actually, thanks, that reminds me. i drawing is most of the time it's just a carbon with hydrogen. So I'm not going to draw the carbon, I'm not going to draw the hydrogen. You have to make the assumption that every carbon has four bonds to it, and therefore if there's this is going to that carbon, as going to that carbon, there must be two hydrogens there. Anyone see that? I think I think Malik has a, a plus five. I'm not sure if I'm doing that right now. One two three four 2, 3, 4, 5, <coughs> plus 10, minus 1, two three four five six. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So there's one here, yeah. there's one here, uh-huh. there's one here, uh, there's one here, there's yeah, one here, uh, there's so. one here, This comes in incredibly handy when you're trying to do this. If you're doing research and... You're trying to study the metabolic pathway, <laughs> and we'll, I'll show you an example of this later this semester, and you're trying to figure out, well, the enzyme that converts oxaloacetate to malate, well, I took the enzyme and I put it in there, and it doesn't do anything, right? Well, the reason it probably doesn't do anything is the fact that if an oxidation or reduction is happening, it probably means you've had to throw in a cofactor, such as NAD or NADH. And you know which one to throw in because if you're going from oxaloacetate, you're thinking it takes oxaloacetate and goes to phthalate, Well, you know that electrons must have gone through, so you're not going to add NADH because that's oxidized. You're going to add any give me NAD. You're going to add NADH, right? So it also helps you to come up with ideas for how would you actually come up with an acid for your particular enzyme problem. Well. Does everyone follow that? So, when you investigate redox balance, some of the oxidation states um, for what has been oxidized and what has been reduced should be equivalent to each other, If they're not, your pathway's wrong. And you'd be amazed the number of people that propose fermentation pathways, and I sit there and look at the paper and I do this calculation, like, there's no way it can work like that because redox doesn't balance, the most basic aspect of fermentation, all right? I'm going so to give you an example. Right? We're going to go through a number of examples, that I want you to, I'm not going to ask you to memorize these pathways, okay? but think about how they work. So, there's homofermentative pathway for lactic acid fermentation. Homofermentative meaning that what they're going to generate is just lactate. Right? And this is a very common um, mechanism. It's common in lactic acid bacteria that we find in a lot of dairy products. So it takes glucose and converts it all the way down to two molecules of pyruvate. So, what pathway is that? Glycolysis. Glycolysis, right? So, what's the oxidation state of glucose? What you do the calculation. Actually, later might down there, isn't it? Forgot to cover it So the oxidation value of glucose is zero, right? You add up all the oxygens, all the hydrogens, carbons you can ignore, you get a value of zero. In the end, you get two molecules of pyruvate. If I only gave you this and this, one thing you can immediately say is, well, pyruvate has an oxidation value of plus two, and so it actually, there are two of them, so it actually, total is plus four. That means, somewhere between glucose to pyruvate, four electrons must have been pulled out of that system. Right? So you don't need to know anything about this at all. My is that and that. All you have to do is do the oxidation value calculation, and now you know two, two electrons. Almost always, it comes out two <coughs> electrons at a time. And so in doing that, what you can end up with is probably generate two molecules of NADH. You don't need to know anything <coughs> about this pattern. Clearly, the organism can't stop there because we started at a value of zero and all of the products in the pathway together have an oxidation value of plus four. That doesn't balance. You have to get back to zero. Pyruvate gets reduced to two molecules of lactate. Both of them go to lactate. Oxidation value of lactate is zero. two molecules of glucose going to two molecules of lactate. Overall, oxidation values are zero. It balances past the pathway. If you go through this as well, you'll notice that we talked about how you generate ATP. Key in on certain structures. 1, this, this is a simplified version of phosphate. Notice alpha position, beta position, keto group. You can get that phosphate off and generate pyruvate, perrubate or the other molecules to pay attention to. but here's that oxygen you got the <coughs> excuse me. the phosphorus would be attack oxygen the opposition beta carbon double out of the carbon you can push the electrons. All right. So this overall process for these organisms is energetically favorable and in the end you have a standard free energy of minus 198 kilojoules per mole. Thermodynamics, this is a great pathway to go through. The organism balances redox, and it generates ATP. Burns to, it uses two ATP up here, but generates four down here, so you get a net gain of two ATP, and you balance your redox. Right. So that's how all these pathways work. You just look through them, think about oxidation values, and then start making proposals. If you had seen this pathway, I didn't tell you where ATP comes in, you should be able to figure out where that would go. And if I didn't tell you what step any redox happened, if you wanted to, you could sit and calculate the oxidation value of every single one of these, and you would find that it's here that that must happen. Because that's where you'd notice the difference in the oxidation values occurring. So these homofermentative organisms, this is great for them to do when there's plenty of glucose. All right? So they can just take glucose, ferment it, generate lactate for lactate itself, because lactate's going to grab those electrons, and then they it's going to be yep. excreted, so you get rid of those, those electrons. So you pull them off of glucose, use them to generate energy, dump them on lactate, and get rid of them. Right. So these organisms do something pretty interesting with the fermentative pathways. <coughs> once they start to get starved for glucose. So glucose levels get really low. And so what the cell would want to do then is to somehow extract more ATP out of each molecule of glucose. Okay? And they have an interesting way of doing that. So this is what, how they do what speak to it, And it also highlights one of the issues that permaphated organisms have to deal with. They go through glycolysis. they get to pyruvate. Normally, they would go through, and go through the two molecules of lactate. So what they're gonna do instead, is stop going to lactate. Now the problem with that is pyruvate to lactate is what allowed them to balance their redox. So now the problem is is that they've stopped going in that direction, but they've gotta still balance redox in some way. And so what happens is, it comes down, pyruvate gets split into formate and two molecules. Two molecules of formate and two molecules of acetyl-CoA. Formate is a product, so you have to account for the oxidation value of that molecule. (coughs) But the acetyl-CoA does something interesting. For one, acetyl-CoA, remember, if you've got CoA, that has reactive ability to become phosphorylated. Very easily, so the COA can go to the phosphate. In essence, you replace the COA with the phosphate. The CO phosphate is a high-energy molecule, right? And so that gives you the ability to generate another molecule of ATP. Right. So what they've done is squeezed out instead of just two total ATPs, they squeezed out one more molecule of ATP out the process. But it comes at a cost, right? Because going from pyruvate to lactate, that's how they balance redox. Well, they got another molecule of ATP, but they still haven't balanced redox. And the way they balance that redox is acetyl-CoA gets converted to um, aldehyde and then to ethanol. Right? Now, you can go through, calculate the oxidation values. You know that redox has happened. But also, I told you to pay attention to patterns. Notice, if you get rid of this, sulfur and hydrogen oxygen there that's technically acid. You can acid to an aldehyde to an alcohol. So it's a pattern that you always see. You convert acids to aldehydes to alcohols very efficiently. It's a redox reaction. It takes two molecules of NADH to do that. You needed to burn two molecules of NADH. That balances your redox. And so that's how you're actually able to ferment those Now, the issue is, is, well, if you're growing on glucose, why not just do this all the time, right? Because you got more ATP out of the process, you balanced your redox, what does it matter? Right? The issue is ethanol. Right? Ethanol is a toxic compound. Right? So in essence, what these bugs are doing is they're starved for glucose, and they're really struggling to get by. So they're willing to take that glucose and squeeze a little more ATP out of it, but make a toxic compound but they can only do it for so long before that accumulates to the point that in essence it kills the cell but they're kind of banking on it eventually one will get better and more glucose will come around before they generate too much ethanol but in essence once it accumulates too high it'll shut down and won't, won't grow anymore. so again if you saw pyruvate forming acetate and ethanol it's a branched You know, we can start to talk about you know, where do you think redox happened where do you think energy generation happened and think about those simple rules that you can go through and do these calculations with. So you can imagine that if you're a lactic acid bacterium, this is beneficial when you have low glucose. If you are someone working in a dairy plant um, and the product you're generating kind of spoils if you get too much ethanol into it, you're going to want to keep track of how much glucose is around so you don't want these bugs converting to this because they become starved. Alright? So you have to make sure that you understand the amount of flux of glucose going through this process is not generating some ethanol. Some people might like ethanol all the very I wouldn't do that. So um, anyway, so just give you that now, there are lactic acid bacteria. You can also have some that are heterofermentated. Right. This is just showing you the process overall. It works in a slightly different way. Glucose is coming through and eventually going to this intermediate, the zylose 5-phosphate. In the process, it's losing carbon dioxide. All right. So you went from a 6 carbon compound a 5 carbon and a 1 carbon, so carbon dioxide is a product. So you would know, if I gave you glucose going to ribulose 5-phosphate and carbon dioxide, without knowing anything in between here, you (coughs) would know that some redox happened. Because the oxidation values of those molecules are not the same. And keep in mind, it's this going to both this and that. So you have to count for both of them, all the products. You go to xylose phosphate, that eventually can go down through the bottom half of glycolysis, and then onto lactate, and you get two molecules of ATP. You get generate one molecule of NADH, but you oxidize one molecule of NADH. So that part of the pathway is fine; you don't have to balance redox in that aspect. But the problem is you generate two molecules of NADH here, the cell has to balance that. And so you get to xylose phosphate, you get to acetyl phosphate. <coughs> <clears throat> and it's what's around the, the phosphate now acetylphosphate, phosphate I've told you is a molecule that has a lot of high energy so it potentially could be able to generate some ATP so you could draw that and say acetyl phosphate goes, generates ATP so you can acetate that's the pathway what's the problem with that? Right, it's not balanced right? you generate generated two reducing reduced molecules up here, but you haven't balanced. These balance down here, but you still have this excess reducing power. You've got to get rid of it. The way to get rid of it is acetyl phosphate goes to acetyl-CoA. This is, and as it's similar to the pathway I just showed you, that technically can be viewed as an acid, acid to an alcohol, to an alcohol, to generate alcohol. Okay? So it's called heterofermentative because you make not only lactate, but you also make smethanol. And so you're not making just lactate. The homofermentative guys will make some lactate, but only when they're really starved for glucose. So, we'll stop there for today. But remember, don't you Start going through and understanding how you always got your way to think about it.